You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. I want to begin our our time with a a story. It's a true story. There was once a a young man who, at the age of 18, was deciding what he wanted to do with his life. His father had died a few years before. He was very close with his mother, whom he he loved dearly, and she loved him, and she was a a Christian who uh, raised him to to know of, of Jesus and the truths of Scripture. And now it was, this time, it was time for this young man to sort of go off on his own. And so he, he went to college where it, it became very obvious very quickly that he was a bright student. He had this really sharp intellect. Um, and as he, as he studied, he began to explore the world for himself. And as that happened, he also began to, this is very common, he began to put off the Christian faith of his upbringing. He wanted to live the good life, and he saw Christianity as a hindrance to living the good life. So he pursued really really two things. He pursued intellectual power, and he pursued physical pleasure to the fullest. So he followed his passions to what he thought would bring him satisfaction. And, and he, because he was the, the greatest student, you know, he's far more intellectually capable than his peers, sort of built up this pride in him. He would, he would take time in class to sort of impress others with his brilliance. And, and he eventually succeeded in this and, and became a, a prestigious and distinguished professor at one of the greatest schools. So he's getting his intellectual, you know, fix. He also jumped headlong into this pursuit of physical pleasure. He was always looking for satisfaction in romantic and sexual relationships. And this went on all throughout his his 20s. Now, the outside world looking in, as this man was growing in popularity, they'd say, man, he's doing well, right? He's this public intellectual. His career's taken off. He, he, had, he had what people might call like an exciting love life, right? People wanted to be him. But in reality, by his own estimation, he was empty inside. His life was a mess. As time went on and he began to sort of rack up these achievements, he realized that he wasn't achieving the good life. He wasn't finding the satisfaction that he longed for. The good life as he understood it couldn't satisfy him. Now, it's, it's mid-June right now, mid to late June. It's, kind of, it's graduation season. You know, there's commencement speeches going on all, all around the world, all around the nation. And as I was thinking about this, this man was really doing what many commencement speeches tell you to do, right? Like, follow your heart. Pursue your passions. The, the, the world is a, a mountain. It's your mountain to climb. Well, the problem for this man was that his heart was hurting his passions couldn't deliver, and even at the top of the mountain of his accomplishments, he knew something was, was missing. Now, all the while, this man's mother is praying fervently for him, praying, begging God that the, the prodigal would, would return. And by God's grace, he began to re-explore 
the Christian faith of his upbringing. And as he did so in his, in his early 30s, God miraculously drew this man back to himself. One day when, when he was in the midst of, of turmoil, wrestling with this emptiness that he felt, he was outside and he heard a child singing a song that included the words, take up and read. That was, that was the lyric to the song. He took that as a command from God to go pick up the scriptures and read. So he did, and he opened up, and the first thing, the first passage he came to was Romans 13, 14, which calls us to, to put off the sensual pursuits of this world and, quote, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And it's at, at that moment that this man was converted. You may have heard this story before. This man is named Augustine. He's the, the North African bishop of Hippo. He lived from 354 to 430 AD, and he went on to become the most influential philosopher and theologian, not, not just of the Christian history, but in the history of the world. Now, why do I tell you that story? Well, this morning, as we, as we look at Psalm 1, Augustine's story illustrates the point of this psalm very well. Maybe you heard it as we were reading it. The message of Psalm 1 is very simple. There are only two ways to live. The way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. Life with God or life without God. The way of the righteous is, uh, or, or, or life without God will leave you empty, unsatisfied, and will eventually lead to sorrow, even death and destruction. Life with God, the truly good life, the truly blessed life, Will, will lead to one of joy and peace and satisfaction. So Augustine went on and he really devoted his life to that message. He said a lot of famous things about this, one of, of which is this. He later wrote in a prayer as he's reflecting on his conversion. He said, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Right? You see, Augustine's story, it could, it could easily fit into our world today, our culture today, I think especially in our city, right? A place that prides itself in innovation and intellectual prowess and cultural influence. In a, in a world that promises all sorts of variations of the good life. That's the world we live in. And you and I are constantly inundated with various offers of here's what it looks to be blessed. Here's what it looks like to be truly happy and satisfied. And what Psalm 1 does, it just cuts through all of that for us. It just sifts through all of those different messages and says, listen, this is what will truly satisfy. This is what the blessed life is, and here is how you attain it. That's the message of Psalm 1. That's the title of the sermon, The Truly Blessed Life. And so as we walk through this short psalm, we're going to look at four characteristics of the blessed life. Let me go ahead and give those to you for you note takers. The truly blessed life, number one, pursues joy in God. Number two, takes sin seriously. Number three, delights in God's word. And number four, bears fruit with patience. The truly blessed life pursues joy in God, takes sin seriously, delights in God's word, and bears fruit with patience. Let's jump in. Number one, the truly blessed life pursues joy in God. Now, I'm just going to warn you, I'm devoting a whole point of the sermon to one word, 
And you're, you're, you, if you hear that, you're like, this is going to be a long sermon. I promise we'll speed up after number one. But verse one begins with this phrase, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. And we need to spend some time on this word, blessed or blessed, because we use it very differently in our culture today than the scriptures use it. So we have to define it, and it's so essential for understanding the Psalms as a whole. I, I think of the common, you know, hashtag blessed on social media, right? Um, I, I did a little search this week. There are, did you know that there are over 147 million posts with the hashtag blessed on Instagram? That's a lot. I read all of them. No, I didn't. Um, most of them, not all, but most of them with photos of beautiful places, right? nice cars, food, like it made me hungry looking at this, right? delicious meals, and, and successful milestones. Hashtag blessed. Now, I just want to say this at, at the outset. There is nothing wrong with seeing any of those things as blessings from God, right? Of course, they, they can be signs of blessing, but... They don't define the blessed life the way the Scriptures do. Okay? The, the message that that sends is, is that blessing is equated with material or temporal things. Whether that's the intentional message or not, that, that's the message it sends. So when we come to the Scriptures, we actually see that the truly blessed life is not dependent upon temporal things. So, okay, so then what, if that's not what it means, then what does it mean to be blessed? Well, I, I love what the, we use the ESV here, the English Standard Version. The Christian Standard Bible is another great translation. It translates this verse, happy is the one. Or we could say, joyous is the one. Right? So, sort of a working definition of what does it mean to be blessed biblically. To be blessed in a biblical sense is to find your ultimate and lasting joy not in any temporal thing, but in God Himself. That's the truly blessed life. Finding and pursuing your joy in God. Now this makes sense when we come to the Scriptures or we come to the, the ministry of Jesus and we hear Him teach about blessedness. Right? Luke 6.20, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says things like this. Blessed are you who are poor... For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. He's talking about followers of God, followers of Christ, on account of the Son of Man. Now, our world hears that and goes, that is crazy. What is, what is blessed or joyous or happy about that? Those circumstances sound miserable, right? Can you imagine those photos on Instagram? Like I'm starving, I'm hungry, I'm sorrowful, I'm, I'm being persecuted for my faith, hashtag blessed. Doesn't, it doesn't really fit our understanding, does it? But here's what Jesus is describing. He's describing the one whose circumstances or temporal things or achievements aren't their source of joy. God is their source of joy. So when those circumstances are heavy upon you, your joy is untouched because your joy is in God. That is the blessed life. 
Blessed is the one, joyous is the one who finds such satisfaction in him and his favor for you. Now we see another hint at this uh, happiness in Psalm 1. So I'm, I'm, I'm arguing that you can interject, if you understand it rightly, joyous or happy in that word blessed in Psalm 1. We see a hint of this in verse 2 as, as well. If you look down, we'll come to that in a second, but it says his delight. It's another good word, right? His delight. That parallels blessed in verse 1. He doesn't find blessing or delight in these sinful things that we'll talk about in a moment in verse 1. Instead, he delights in God's law. And I think Christians have a difficult time with with this understanding of happiness and and the pursuit of joy. And there's good reason. Because if I say God wants you to be happy, right, you may hear that and think, well, that sounds like sort of just another self-help book. And you're just trying to maybe mix in a a little bit of Jesus or religion in there, right? It sounds like saying, well, just God wants you to go just live your life as you want and do what you want. Just go and be happy. That's not the case. That's not what Psalm 1 is saying. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus teaches. You see, by beginning Psalm 1 with this word, blessed, this phrase, blessed is the one, the psalmist is acknowledging something. He's acknowledging that every single one of us is looking for that kind of life. Every single one of us is looking for the good life, the life of joy, the life of satisfaction, the life of blessedness, right? Remember Augustine's story. He he was doing what all of us do. He was pursuing joy. I, I think this will bring me happiness. I think this will bring me satisfaction. All of us were wired to do that. It is not wrong to seek pleasure and joy and satisfaction. That's actually what we were created to do because we were created in the image of the eternally happy, joyous, triune. So it it makes sense that we are joy pursuers. We are happiness pursuers. That's not the problem. The problem is not that we pursue joy. It's that we pursue joy outside of God. That's the issue. We pursue blessedness outside of Him. The Westminster Confession, or the Catechism, says this, the chief end of man, or the goal of man, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we glorify God by enjoying Him. That's what we're created for, to pursue joy. The problem is we look for it elsewhere. I think of, if you remember a few weeks ago, we were going through question four of our catechism with the kids. And the question was, how and why did God create us? God created us male and female in his own image to glorify him. He created us in a specific way and in a specific purpose. And I used this silly illustration. I got a lot of laughs from the kids. I was proud of that one. I asked if anyone played any instruments. And someone said, oh yeah, I play drums. I said, okay. Well, a drumstick was created for a purpose, right? What was the purpose of a drumstick? You can answer. To play drums. You use a drumstick and you hit the drum. Now imagine, so I told the kids, imagine if you try to use the drumstick to eat your dinner. And they were like, ha, 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 that's so funny. Right? It doesn't work. You make a huge mess. Now, is anything wrong with the drumstick? No, there's nothing wrong with the drumstick, but that's not what it's for. Our problem, your problem, my problem, our struggle is not our career 
It's not money. It's not relationships. It's not sex rightly understood or whatever. God, uh, good gifts that God has given us can be rightly enjoyed for the glory of God. Our problem is this. When sin entered the world and distorted our hearts and minds, we began to look to those things to give us the joy and satisfaction that only God can give. We started using them for something that was not their purpose. When that happens, we try to we turn the gifts into the giver and we neglect the giver altogether. Augustine said this, There is a joy not granted to the wicked, but only to those who worship you thankfully. And this joy, you yourself are. The happy life is this, to rejoice to you, in you, and for you. That is it, and there is no other. So friends, the truly blessed life pursues joy in God. Now, I know that's a lot for just one word in the passage. We're going to speed up, but listen, this is essential also for understanding the Psalms because, and we're just, we're doing select Psalms this summer starting today. In the Psalms, what we have is a picture of saints in every single situation you can imagine, right? They're, They're in trouble, they're discouraged, they're celebrating, there's conflict, there's sin, there's suffering, all of these things. But every single psalm that is a prayer is God's people bringing all of their mess to God, all without any inhibition in prayer. Why are they doing that? Because David, Asaph, the sons of Korah, all the anonymous authors of the Psalms, they know that God is the source of true blessedness. So in any every situation, they run to Him. Right? The truly blessed life pursues joy in God. Number two, we'll speed up here. The, this, the truly blessed life takes sin seriously. Verse one again, blessed is the man who what, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the psalmist describes here the kind of of life the blessed person lives. And he does it negatively. Okay, So so here are the things the blessed person does not do. And notice, as you read this verse, notice the progression in the metaphor. Do you see that? From walking to standing to sitting. Essentially, the message is this. If you begin receiving the wrong kind of counsel... Without any discernment, eventually you'll stand in the wrong way of life. If you continue in that, eventually you will settle your life in a way that scoffs at the things of God. Now, it's important to note here that if you look at Proverbs, the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers are three categories that Solomon uses to sum up foolishness. So we can just sum this up by saying foolishness and sin, a life without God. So, so the truly blessed person is able to identify the allure of foolishness, that downward spiral of, of sin, and to act accordingly. It, it doesn't just happen like this. You're walking along, you're trusting the Lord, you're trying to follow God, you're pursuing righteousness, and then boom, the next day you're like in prison for life, right? Or you did something to, to wreck your family, right? What it's saying is there is this allure, Right? And we see this in our culture. The most obvious one, I'm just going to point out the, the elephant in the room or the elephant in the hallway, right? Pride of any kind 
is sinful. It's an affront to God. And I don't, I don't mean, you know, I'm proud of my child. That, that means more just celebrating the goodness. But true pride, self-exaltation, put yourself in the place of God. Any kind of pride that is celebrated is sinful. But do you know what, you know what has happened in our culture and it happens to us? Just normalize sin so much. It's in what we, what we watch, what we listen to. So much so that we don't even know that we're actually being counseled by something. And if we're not discerning of those things, eventually, you know, we're, we're, we're standing in it. Then eventually, we're, we're scoffing at God. Friends, I know, I know this is not a, a popular subject, but we are in a month right now that is celebrating something using a symbol that God originally gave as a promise, but is now being used to celebrate sin and pride. That is scoffing at God. And Psalm 1 says the blessed person takes sin seriously. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean you don't engage the world. He's not saying just, just stay in your house and pray and read your Bible. Be afraid of the world. No, he's saying, listen, be discerning. Identify the allure of foolishness wherever it comes from, this downward spiral of sin, and don't walk in that. Take sin seriously. Now, James uses another metaphor that helps, gives, uh, gives us this picture of alluring, and I think it's helpful for us. He says in James 1, 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So it's not just the things out there, it's in here. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You hear that? Lured and enticed. Hudson and I were Hudson's my 14-year-old. We were fishing on Hardy Pond Wednesday morning, and we were trying to catch bass, and they weren't biting. So we, the, the bait was too big, but there was these little sunfish right on the dock. And we were kind of giving up, and we were, it was actually kind of a sad picture, because no, no, we're not catching any fish, but there's these little sunfish. So we were just like dropping it in right there and doing one of these guys, you know? And you, you see them, you drop it in, and the fish is like, I don't know about that. Okay, cast it in again gets a little bit closer, and I'm kind of like flicking it, and it looks like a worm because I'm a master fisherman, right? Gets a little bit closer, a little bit closer. What am I doing? I'm luring it in. Eventually, it bites. James is is saying that's what sin does. The psalmist in Psalm 1 is saying it, it allures you in, draws us in. Psalm 1 tells us that allurement can come from the outside world around us. James 1 tells us it also comes from within us in our own sinful hearts. The New City Catechism, which we use here, defines sin as this. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world He created, rebelling against Him by living without reference to Him, not being or doing what He requires in His law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. That's serious. So friends, Psalm 1 exhorts us here to take sin seriously and also to take inventory of your own life. Do, do I do that? Do I take sin seriously? Or do I just sort of flirt with it? Say, oh, it's not, it's not a big deal. Are, are you aware that there's an enemy attempting to draw you into a life of, of misery? Hiding the hook by saying, this is the truly blessed life. This is what will truly bring you satisfaction. Think about your, your thought life, what you listen to, what you, you watch, what your desires are, the, the company you keep. 
Do, do you excuse sin? Do you say it's not that big of a deal? Or do you repent of it? Do you, do you minimize wickedness, the wickedness of your own heart, not just the world around you, but your own heart? Or do you mourn over it? And if you think this seems like kind of heavy-handed, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, that means live a life of sin and wickedness, you will die. But if by the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's only two ways to live, friends. The saints in church history would use this word mortify. It's a real scary word, right? Mortify your sin. Sounds like a metal band. To describe this, how we should view our sin, we should try to kill it. That's why John Owen writes of Romans 8.13, he's commenting on this. He says, do you mortify? Do you, do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Some of the harshest words about the seriousness of sin come not from John Owen, not from the Apostle Paul, but come from Jesus himself. Listen to what he says in Mark chapter 9, verse 43 through 49. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. That's a tough text. But Jesus wants us to take sin seriously. Now, he's not encouraging actual self-mutilation here, but what is he doing? He's using hyperbole to say, you and I must take drastic measures against our sin. Drastic measures. If Psalm 1 uh, is, is describing what the truly blessed person avoids, Jesus is telling us, here's what you must do. You must wage war against it. The glory of God and your eternal joy, your, your blessedness are at stake here. Just jump to the end of the psalm, Psalm 1. What does verse 5 say? The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the truly blessed life takes sin seriously. The truly blessed life also, number three, delights in God's word. We're going to move to something a little happier now. Verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. By the way, taking sin seriously and delighting in God's word are two sides of the same coin. That's why it's here like this. So if the blessed person doesn't live like the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers, the foolish, then what does he do? Verse 2 tells us that not only what he does, but why he does it. Do you see that? There's an action here. On his law, he meditates. That's what he does. And then there's a reason for the action. His delight is in the law of the Lord. So again, this is another reminder to us that God is not a killjoy. God is not just saying, watch out for sin. Don't do this. Here's the list of things not to do. No. What is God saying? He's saying, I want you to be delighted in me. I want you to have the joy of blessedness in me. 
Now, where is such delight found? The psalmist tells us it's in the law of the Lord. And that word law is, is, is the Torah here. It's referring to the books of Moses, which make up the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as God's word was being written, and as salvation history was progressing through the Bible, more books uh, were added to Scripture and added to the list until the set of texts that we have today was completed. It was canonized, right? So we can rightly understand this verse to mean that the, the, the blessed person delights in their Bible, delights in the Word of God, the Bible that we have in our hands here. Charles Spurgeon makes a great application on this. He says, the psalmist has not a fourth of what we possess. It was a very little Bible then, but it has gone on increasing like a majestic river until it is the wondrous volume we have. And here's the application. I love this. We, therefore, should take ten times more delight in it than the psalmist did. It's a great point. We know more of the salvation story than the psalmist did. Should we not delight in it more? See, the scriptures are to be a, a delight to us because they are God's very word to us. We're to, we're to cherish them and receive them because they give us God. It is God's giving of himself to us, speaking to us. Now, we're going to spend more time on this next week in Psalm 19, but it, it's good and right to ask this morning. Just ask yourself, do I delight in God's word as a Christian? I think some of us, sometimes myself included, we think of God's word like cough medicine, right? Tastes bad. It's hard to, you know, swallow. I may have to plug my nose sometimes, right? But I know I need it. So, so I'm going I'm to take it in, right? but only because I have to. Now, this is not to, I'm not trying to shame you, you know, about your Bible reading habits. This is not any of that. This is really an invitation, right? To, to hear God speak to you. He wants to speak to you. He has spoken to you. I've, I remember being a youth pastor, and so often uh, high schoolers would come to me and say, I just feel like God's not speaking to me in my life. And I'd say, okay, well, are you reading your Bible? Well, no, not really. Well, it's like that's, that's how you hear God speak to you, through the Word. He has spoken. And it, so if that's true, that he's spoken and is speaking through his word, and it is true, then you and I, whatever it looks like, we must make it a priority. However that works for you, whatever reading plan, a lot of scripture, a little scripture, whatever, it, there's really no rule there. Whatever works for you, we must make this book a priority to our lives if we want to live the blessed life. And notice, verse 2 doesn't just tell us this. He delights in the law of the Lord. It also gives us a, a, a really helpful method. What's, what's the method? Meditation. And it, so it seems like here delighting in God's word leads to meditating on it, and meditating on God's word leads to delighting in it. Two sides of the same coin, right? So, so what does this mean then? What is, what is meditation? We tend to think of Eastern meditation, right, and emptying your mind. I was walking down Moody Street this week, and I saw this flyer for, you know, a meditation and mindfulness class. I don't know what all of that's about, but I can, I can tell you there's probably doesn't have anything to do with God's Word, right? But the idea of Eastern meditation is we're going to empty our minds, sort of try to take this self, ourselves to, to this other plane. Biblical meditation is the opposite. It's actually filling your mind with God's Word. The Hebrew word for meditation here means muttering or musing. 
So the image here is of the psalmist sort of walking around, going about his, his day, reciting the truths of Scripture, mulling it over, maybe even muttering it. I, I wouldn't encourage you to just do that while you walk by yourself down the street, right? Look weird. But over and over in, in your mind and considering all the meaning and implications of it, right? Taking small chunks of text and meditating on it. Or to give you another picture, uh, think, think about how a cow eats grass. I don't know how often you've thought about that before, uh, but, but first, it's really interesting, they take a bite, they chew it, then they swallow, then they unswallow, that's the nice way I'm going to put it, they unswallow, and they chew it and rechew it some more, and then they swallow again. It's called rumination, or, or chewing the cud, and what they're doing is they're, they're, they're improving their digestion by doing that, and they're drawing out all of the nutrients of the food when they chew the cud. That's a good picture of meditation. And so this verse is really given to us at the very start of the Psalms as a guideline for how to read the Psalms as a whole. I'd encourage you to to try it this week. Try meditating on God's Word. Take a phrase from this passage, maybe something that the Lord brought, you know, stuck out to you as, as we're working through this. Write it down. Repeat it over and over in your mind. Turn it into a prayer. Ask questions about it. What, what are all the applications here to, to my thinking, to my, my emotions, to my feeling, to my situations? How does this lead me to love others? Right? Chew on it. Draw out all of the nutrients. That's what it is to meditate. Or, or to use another image, right? when you hear the Word of God, it's like lighting a, lighting a small spark. But when you meditate on the Word of God, you're fanning that little spark into a flame of delight. And if you're like me, what often happens is I hear the Word of God or I read it and it stays in my mind, but I don't mull over it so it doesn't affect my affections like it should or my will as it should, right? That's what meditation does. It takes it from just hearing it and and saying, oh, that was interesting, to then pressing it deep into your heart. Thomas Watson said this, he said, a Christian without meditation is like a soldier without arms, a workman without tools. Without meditation, the truths of God will not stay with us. The heart is hard and the memory is slippery, and without meditation, all is lost. So the truly blessed life delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it continually. And then fourth, and finally, the truly blessed life bears fruit with patience. Look at verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and the leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So we get this picture here of a tree that's in a a harsh and dry climate, like a withering environment. But the tree's strong and healthy because it's planted near a water supply and its roots run deep and draw nourishment from it. So that withering environment does not kill the tree. Then we see that the wicked are like this chaff. The chaff is this sort of dry shell that encases a seed grain. And when you're separating the wheat from the chaff, you just shake that off. It's really like dust. It blows away in the wind. And so this picture is teaching us that that the truly blessed life endures when hardship comes, like a tree that's planted and rooted deep in a withering environment. The leaf does not wither. So you know that hardships come in life. We experience 
times when our plans don't go the way we should. We experience suffering. We experience disappointment. And I'm sure, I'm sure if you're honest, there are times in your life where you wonder, is this discouragement, is this trial going to completely uproot the tree of my faith? See, the blessed life is, is not one that says, oh, bad things don't happen to you. Believe in Jesus. No, the blessed life says those things absolutely will happen to you, but you can be rooted so when they do, you're ready. If you're, if you're rooted in Christ, you'll endure. The storms will come, but the tree won't blow over because the roots are deep. That's the image here. I think of, I'm from California, I think of these massive California redwoods. Have any of you seen those in person? On a picture, you're like, that's a big tree. In person, you're like, that's a, a really big tree. You can drive a car through it, right? And what's so, so amazing about those, not only their size, but, but what they can withstand. Because the roots are deep, and they've been, been growing for so long, and the trunks are so strong, not only can they withstand heavy winds, but even the raging California wildfires, they endure. Endurance. The psalmist goes on, it's not only will you endure... But you'll also bear fruit. And note, notice here how bearing fruit is the natural result of being rooted deep. The Bible loves this tree image of a life of faith. It helps us understand so well how faith works. I think one temptation in hearing this psalm, in Psalm 1, would be, okay, you hear it and then you go, okay, now I'm going to go try really, really hard to live a good life, Right? I'm going to go take sin seriously, I'm going to go do righteous things, I'm going to bear fruit, then I will live the blessed life. Friends, that's like taking a basket of apples and a staple gun and going over to a dead tree, you know, stapling a bunch of apples on it and then standing back and being like, look at my apple tree. That's not an apple tree, right? Maybe from a distance it looks like it, there's, there's things on it, there's apples on it, but the roots are, are not deep, the tree is actually dead, See, you and I can only live a blessed life, we can only bear the fruit of righteousness if we're rooted by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's what this tree picture gives us. Christ is the source. Christ is the nutrients. He's the soil, if you will. He's the the river that is providing the source of bearing fruit. Jesus, Jesus says it this way in John 15. Abide in me, or you can say remain in me, or be rooted in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now, notice also, as the psalmist describes this in verse 3, he's not only saying you'll, you'll endure, the leaf will not wither, you'll bear fruit. He's also saying you'll bear fruit in due season. Don't miss that phrase. In due season. Have you ever noticed how the best things in life take a really long time to come about? Right? Like the joy of a, a trusted friendship. That doesn't happen overnight. S- seeing your children grow it doesn't, doesn't happen over, overnight. Or, or some of you have learned instruments. You know how hard and, and time-consuming that can be. 
See, this is another reason why I think the tree illustration is so helpful for us as we consider living a blessed life of joy unto God and joy in God. We have to know this. You don't, you don't plant a seed one day and then see the fruit or the tree the next, right? It takes time. It takes nurture and care and the right conditions for a tree to grow and bear fruit. This means we're not only to bear fruit, we're not only to grow in holiness, but we're, we're, we're to have patience as God works in us. Jesus addresses this in the parable of the soils. In Luke 8, 15, he says this, As for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. A truly blessed life patiently endures, bearing fruit in due season to the end. And then we see the final verse of this psalm, verse 6. It says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous the way of the wicked shall perish. What does that mean? The Lord knows. Well, it doesn't just mean the Lord knows about, because He knows about the way of the wicked as well. Something deeper. This is an intimate knowledge. For Him to say the Lord knows you, righteous person, Christian, it's to say the Lord cares for you with an affectionate approval. That's what it means. The Lord knows you. And, and, and I love this because the psalm ends with the reminder that the truly blessed life is not ultimately dependent upon you or me, right? But upon the one who knows us, who loves us, who affectionately cares for us. It's dependent upon Christ. Think back through this psalm. Can you name one person you know who has never walked in the counsel of the wicked? Or, or stood in the way of sinners, or sat down in the seat of scoffers? I can't name a single person. Can you name one person who has fully and consistently delighted himself or herself in the law of the Lord? I can't. Not anybody that I know. Can, can you name one person who has perfectly walked in righteousness, bearing fruit, or, or one person who has fully and continuously found their ultimate joy in God. Friends, there's only one person who has done that, and his name is Jesus. The fully righteous one who lived the blessed life we could not live, who was crucified, buried, and rose from the grave so that you and I might believe for joy. So we come, we, we come to the end of Psalm 1, but... Did you know that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were originally together as one psalm? We'll hear more about Psalm 2 next month from a, from a guest speaker. But Psalm 2 goes on to describe in detail who the blessed man of Psalm 1 is. It's the anointed one, the Messiah. It's Jesus Christ. And do you know how Psalm 2 ends? It ends with this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So friends, if you want to live the truly blessed life, the first and foundational thing you and I must do is trust in Christ. Take refuge in him. In him, you will find joy in God. In him, you will have your desires transformed so that you take sin seriously and you will delight 
in his word, his law, and you'll bear fruit with patience to the end. Take refuge in him and you will be blessed.